This morning we're going to be talking a little bit about fears. We all uh, have them. Often they come out in our dreams. Most of you here, when you were younger, maybe in elementary school, dreamed of showing up to uh, school in your pajamas. Or maybe a little later on, you uh, dreamed of uh, showing up to take a test, and you can't remember what class you're in, you can't figure out what the test is about. My modern version of that one is that I'm standing up here, and I've been away at a conference all week and haven't prepared a sermon, <laughs> and I can't even find the passage that we're supposed to be teaching. But like I said, we all have fears. Fear is part of all of our lives. An important part of growing up is learning how to deal with our fears. Uh, Children are very fearful. They're afraid to leave their mothers at first. They're afraid of their first day of school. They're afraid of doing their part in the school play. They're afraid of their first overnighter. They're afraid of their first just about anything. Uh, This is called uh, neophobia, fear of anything new, and we all have it to some degree. But like I said, learning to deal with, to handle our fears is an important part of growing up. If we don't do that, our fears grow up with us and get bigger and get meaner and begin to take away from our lives, paralyzing us, keeping us from trying anything new or anything risky. Last week, my daughter was looking in one of her magazines, and she showed me this fear that was described in the magazine. It has a technical name. See if I can get this right. Arachabitrophobia. I'm not making this up. That is the fear of having peanut butter stuck to the roof of your mouth. I looked in the um, in my medical dictionary under phobias, and there were page after page of fine print of just the most common phobias. I've shared some of these with you, but let me uh, uh, share some of these phobias. There's the ones everybody knows about, like claustrophobia, fear of confinement, uh, acrophobia, fear of heights. Since the movie, there's arachnophobia, fear of spiders. But how many of you know what batrachophobia is? That's fear of frogs. One fear that I suffered from in my growing up years is parthenophobia, fear of girls. <laughs> it's a fear that um, is valuable to have if you're in the dating scene. Scalerophobia, fear of bad men. Here's one we may need a little more of about around here. Pecatophobia, fear of sinning. And there's a couple that we need a little less of on the church staff that's Ponophobia and phenemophobia, fear of work and fear of thinking. (laughs) The one that kind of covers it all is panophobia, fear of everything. And if you're uncomfortable with this discussion, it may be because you have Hellenophobia. That is the fear of cumbersome pseudoscientific terms. (laughs) I didn't make any of these up. These came off of that, that sheet. You know, and we laugh uh, about these, but apparently for people who suffer from these phobias, It's no laughing matter. And beyond these phobias, we all have our everyday concerns in life that scare us. Uh, Our concerns for our children and their futures and the decisions they're making. Our our fears, our concerns for our job and our financial future. Our fear 
of being rejected by people that are important to us, whether it's a parent or, or a spouse or a child or a friend. You know, none of us are insulated from these fears. Several years back, I was sitting with a woman who uh, was facing a frightening future. Her husband, just uh, a couple of weeks before, had gone to see a doctor because he had a slight discomfort in his eye. Went in there. The doctor immediately uh, sent him to the hospital. And they did a radical surgery, removing the eye, removing part of the cheekbone, part of the skull, part of the brain, trying to get the cancer out. He walked into the hospital feeling relatively fine. And he didn't come out. And here was this woman facing the future without her husband, without her children's father. And my heart broke. My heart ached. But it also scared me. That could happen to any of us. That could be my wife, my child. So much of life is beyond our control. We can't even see what's coming next. And even if we could see it, we couldn't do anything about it. Anything can happen to any of us at any time. Or to our spouse. Or to our children. You know, is it any wonder that we... uh, are often so plagued by fear. Larry Crabb said that the governing emotional energy in the unregenerate human personality is fear. What he's saying by that is, apart from the grace of God, the thing that controls human behavior more than any other factor is fear. See, if that's true, and I think it can be shown both biblically and empirically that it is, then we've got to learn how to deal with fear. The Bible has a lot to say about fear all the way through it, right from the beginning. We're told that fear entered into the human experience because of Adam's sin. Shortly after he sinned, he became afraid, and that began to affect his behavior. He hid. And from that point on, every time God called a man or a woman to to himself, one of the first things that he had to deal with in that person's life, was fear. With Abraham, even before he was known as Abraham, God said, Abram, do not be afraid, for I am your shield. Then with Joshua, when he faced superior armies as they invaded the, the promised land, do not be afraid, I have delivered them into your hands. When Jeremiah was afraid to speak God's word to the people, he was afraid of their response. God said to him, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. When the angel approached Mary, the first words out of his mouth were, Do not be afraid. You have found favor in the sight of God. It's very difficult to find any man or woman of God who doesn't have to learn how to deal with their fear very early on in his or her ministry, life with God. In the book we've been studying, the book of Luke, moving into the section where Jesus is starting to focus his training on his disciples. And right here at the beginning of that section, Jesus wants them to learn about how to handle their fears. Turn with me to Luke 8. Here we have a practicum, a a lab on dealing with your fears. I'm going to start reading about verse 22, read through 25, and then make a couple of observations. But Luke 8, verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat 
was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they ask one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. I want you to get a feel for what's going on here. I'm going to bring in some of the information from Matthew and Mark. They describe the same story. They add a little bit of information that Luke doesn't. Each adds something of their own. But in in the the book of Mark points out that Jesus had had a long day of teaching at this point. He was tired. It was evening. The sun had already begun to go down. The crowds were still there. Jesus couldn't just go back to Peter's house where he was staying because the crowds were going everywhere he was going. So what he decides to do is to get into Peter's boat. And he says, let's go on to the other side of the lake. So without packing a toothbrush or anything, they pile into Peter's boat and head out the five miles across the lake. Jesus is tired. He's bushed. So he goes into the back of the boat, the stern, where it's a little more stable, lays down on a cushion, falls asleep. As they're going out, the wind begins to pick up, starts turning into a real storm. In uh, in Matthew, it calls it a a fierce gale. Mark calls it a furious squall. Sounds like a a baby who's not been fed. But the word he uses there is is for a a hurricane force winds. Terrible storm. You got to remember who these guys were, these disciples, what they used to do for a living. These guys were fishermen. They lived on the sea. They weren't afraid of a few choppy waves, but they were scared about what was happening. Well, back when uh, I was on a project in the Philippines, the whole team, there was about 18 of us, decided we wanted to go to another island to minister. This island was maybe two or three miles across a little stretch of, of ocean. So we got into this little tiny boat, all jammed in there, probably about the same size as Jesus' boat, set out for this other island. Now, it was a very calm day. There was no danger. But I tell you, every time that boat went up and down with the swells, our hearts rose and fell with it. We were all landlubbers. And the Filipino sailors who were driving the boat were greatly entertained by our fear and trepidation. But quite honestly, their amusement was a great comfort to me. Because as scared as I was, if I had looked at them and saw them scared, I would have known we were in trouble. You see, these... Uh, fishermen, now disciples, they knew enough to know that they were really in trouble. And they were scared. They knew this was the big one. This was it. They were going to die here. So in panic, they go and they wake Jesus up. Jesus wakes up, rubs his eyes, looks at the wind and the waves, says, knock it off. And they knock it off. The, the, The disciples go into shock. Man, they don't have any way to process this. Sure, they knew Jesus had power. They'd seen him heal a couple of people at a healing service. They'd seen him cast out some demons. But to speak and to have the wind and the waves obey, and they didn't have any way to process that, anything to compare that with. Realize we're no better off than than they are. We don't have anything to compare that kind of power with ourselves. You know, our nuclear weapons or nuclear devices are puny compared to the power of the wind. And the waves, we don't have anything that we can compare that with. Maybe maybe the power of gravity. You see, they had nothing 
in which to, to be able to understand the extent of that power, and it terrified them. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Where is your faith? And uh, Matthew and Mark were told that he also added, Why are you so cowardly? Man, what a rebuke. Now, what did these guys do wrong? I, you know, I want to jump to their defense here a little bit. What did they do wrong? Was it wrong to wake Jesus up? Did Jesus wake up grumpy? Was it, was it wrong to be afraid they knew they were going to die? The boat was taken in water. It was almost over. What did they do wrong? Why did Jesus ask them where their faith was? Well, I think to understand this, we need to understand really what's going on and really what Jesus was saying. See, these guys were in a life-threatening situation. They thought they were going to die, and they were afraid. And there is nothing wrong with that. There'd be something wrong if in the face of a life-threatening situation, you didn't have adrenaline pumping through your veins. See, there's nothing wrong with that fear. But they didn't go to Jesus with that fear and say, Jesus, and this is out of our control. We're afraid here. We can't handle this. Would you help us? Please help us. No, they came and they attacked. They said, Jesus, we're going to die here and you don't care. You got us into this mess and you're sleeping. You see, this is implied in Luke, in Mark and Matthew. It's explicit. They say, we're going to die and you don't care. See, they attack Jesus. They say, you know, you got us into this mess. We were just obeying you and now everything's falling apart. We're just trying to follow God's will and my life is crashing down on my ears and I'm scared and God doesn't care. And what does Jesus say? First in Matthew and Mark, he says, why are you so cowardly? And that's a harsh rebuke. That's tough words. In the NIV, it translates, why are you so afraid? But that misses the power of that word. In the NASB, it says, why are you so timid? But I think that still misses it. The word doesn't speak of the emotion of fear, of the physiological reaction of fear. That word speaks of our response to that emotion. The difference between courage and cowardice is not the, the, the intensity of the emotion of fear. It's the nature of our response to that emotion. In Stephen Crane's uh, Red Badge of Courage, Henry, in the midst of horrible Civil War battles, discovers that real courage is not the absence of fear. It's the ability to do what is right, what you've been called to do in the midst of nearly overwhelming fear. So Jesus is not rebuking them for their fear. He rebukes them for their cowardice. There is no sin in fear. When you feel afraid, that's just a fact. That's just information. It tells you something about the situation you're in, that it's dangerous. Or it tells you something about yourself, that you respond to these situations in that way. And you can begin to discover uh, uh, things about yourself and bring that to God. There is no sin. There is nothing wrong with the fear. But when we allow that fear to cause us to turn our focus inward, to forget about the needs around us, to turn on God, to accuse Him, to curse Him, to to lash out at Him or to lash out at others because we're afraid, then we are wrong. Then we are sinning. We are acting in a cowardly way. Notice, Jesus does not reject them for their cowardice. He doesn't just step out of the boat and let it sink. He takes care of them. 
In the process, He shows them more of Himself. He loves them. He understands their fear, yet He confronts it. He asks them why they're so cowardly. He calls on them to be strong and courageous. He understands, but He confronts. And He loves us the same way. That when we're facing some scary situation and it feels like God doesn't care, that He's not paying attention, He understands. But He also calls on us to be strong and to be courageous. He also confronts us when we allow that sin to cause us to act unloving. See, the real problem with cowardice is that it is a lack of faith. That's why Jesus says, where is your faith? Now, faith is an often misunderstood and misused word. Faith doesn't mean kind of an unrealistic optimism. Keep the faith. Faith isn't a a vague sense that everything will turn out all right. Faith is purely and simply trust. And Jesus is saying, don't you trust me? Don't you know me well enough by now to know that I care? That's what they were accusing him of, of not caring. In the midst of those storms of life, and we get scared. And we somehow jump to the conclusion that God doesn't care. That He's not paying attention. All we can hear is our own panicked thoughts and the pounding of our own hearts. And we wonder where God is in all of this. Like David in Psalm 13, we cry out, Oh God, how long will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? See, I take courage in David's freedom to pour his heart out to God. To tell God exactly what he is feeling. You see, we have that freedom. To, to, to be honest with God about what we're feeling. But in the midst of that, we don't need to attack him. We don't need to accuse him. He's not going to reject us if we just open our hearts. We can tell Him that we're afraid, that we're confused, that we don't like this situation. But then even as we do that, we can remind ourselves that He's in the boat, that He's going to take care of us, that He can handle anything that comes at us. Ray Steadman had a quote that I will always remember in relationship to this story. He says, when the storms of life come at you, Remember two things. One, the boat won't sink. And two, the storm won't last forever. See, we know that to be true, not because we're so optimistic. We know that to be true because Jesus said it. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that he's going to stay in the boat with us. And his word is trustworthy. We know that he is in the boat and the boat won't sink. The storm won't last forever. We can be strong and courageous. This reminds me of one of my favorite stories. I've told you this story before, actually a couple of times, but I like it, so I'm going to tell it again. Malcolm Anderson, who used to go to church here, was telling me that when he was a warrant officer in the Army, one of his jobs was to ferry planes from one base to another base so they get worked on. One time he went to this base, picked up a DC-3, a real solid, strong airplane, but they were going to refurbish it into a very plush office, uh, staff officer transport plane. So they had torn all of the interior out. It's getting ready to take off. The tower calls, asks if they can take this young soldier to the base they're going to. This guy, kid was fresh out of boot camp, but he needed to get to this other base. So they said, sure. Kid gets on the airplane, and he's looking around, and this thing's torn up. And they can see he's nervous. So they decide to have a little fun with the kid. So they tell him that this airplane is condemned, and it's on its way to the junkyard. 
And then to make the story believable, they uh, uh, they issue him a, a, a parachute, show him how to use it, go over all these emergency procedures and evacuation procedures. They got this kid terrified. Plane takes off, gets up to a cruising altitude. The pilot leans the mixture for the engines. Engines kind of sputter a little. One of them turns around and says, Oh no, this is it. We're going to crash. Kid jumps up, runs to the back of the plane, and before they can stop him, throws the door open and jumps. <laughs> Malcolm said he got to the door just in time to see this little parachute open over the desert. They called back to the um, base to tell him to come out and pick this kid up, and they were ordered back to the base. Malcolm said the commander was so furious with him, he said if it wouldn't look so bad on his own record, he would have busted Malcolm a couple of stripes. Now, what's the point of that story? You see, in spite of what that kid thought, in spite of everything his senses were telling him, everything his logic was telling him, everything the people around him were telling him, that plane was not crashing. It wasn't going in. He didn't need to jump. And in spite of what's going on in your life, the fact that you're taken in water, you don't need to jump. Stay in the boat with Jesus. Don't bail out on Him. He's in the boat. And He cares. The boat won't sink. And the storm won't last forever. Before we uh, are completely out of time, let's uh, look at the next story. It's one of the most vivid stories in the New Testament. It's one of my favorites. This is a horror story. Several years ago, when my oldest daughter was in third grade, she had a slumber party for her birthday. And one of the little girls, BJ, had been practicing ghost stories for weeks. And so we got them all settled down. Our lights off. Becky and I went to bed. And this girl started telling her ghost stories. Over and over, I had to get up, get them settled down, try to calm them down, get them to sleep. Finally, in the wee hours of the night, I got up to check on them, and I went in there, and here's this empty floor, and I look around, and there are seven girls packed in the corner of the room, in this little ball, this little huddle where they had all fallen asleep, huddled together. See, they loved those stories. They loved to be scared. I think, to some degree, some part of the reason that children love to be scared is because, at least for a little while, those fantastic fears distract from the real-life fears that they have to deal with. Every day. But anyway, here's a, a, a horror story with the right ending. Let me read it and then talk you through it again. Starting with verse 26 of Luke 8. They sailed to the region of the Gerizines, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. 
When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerizines asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Okay, now think about it. What time is it when they arrived on the other side? If Mark tells us they left after the sun went down, this is nighttime. And they've been blown off course. And they land in a graveyard. This area that's full of these dark, ominous caves that they put dead bodies in. And there's this guy that lives there. When I was in junior high, I used to love to walk through the graveyard in in, in our town. It was scary. It was eerie. Now, why would a graveyard be scary? Well, because your imagination runs wild with you. And you're afraid you might run into this guy. I mean, this guy is exactly what you're afraid of finding in a cemetery. This guy's described for us. He was naked. He had chains hanging from his body where he'd broken the chains. The chains are rattling. And Mark, we're told that he would run around screaming and gashing himself with stones. So he was bloody and beaten and a mess. Matthew, we're told that nobody would go into this area. They were terrified. This man was uncontrollable and they were scared. See, this guy made Freddy Krueger look like a choir boy. And this guy's for real. He's not uh, some Hollywood makeup artist's imagination. This guy is real. We're told when they got there, he came immediately, rushed up to Jesus. In fact, in Mark, we're told that he saw them from a long ways off. Probably up on the hill howling at the moon or something. But when he saw them come, he ran down to them. The word there for ran is to rush at, like to attack. He comes running down immediately to them. Now, it doesn't say, but i got to think that more than one disciple was headed back through the waves, knees high, trying to get back in the boat. The rest of them were all lined up single file behind Jesus, (laughs) peeking around to try to see what was going to go on. This man ran up to Jesus, threw himself at Jesus' feet, began to beg Jesus not to torment him. He called Jesus. He said, what... Do you want with me, Son of the Most High God? That seems to be the the name that the demons know Jesus by. He gets called that frequently by them. Jesus had begun to cast the demons out, and they begged him not to. He asked, what's your name? And apparently one of the demons answered, said legion, because a lot of demons were in this guy. A legion was a force of up to 6,000 Roman soldiers. This guy was horribly demonized. Lots of demons were tormenting him and, 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 and destroying him, damaging him, leaving him uh, oppressed and punished by these demons. The demons begged Jesus not to uh, throw them into the abyss, but to put them in this herd of swine. Now, there's some speculation that this is uh, still uh, Jewish herdsmen, and pigs were very specifically... Uh, not to be raised by by Jewish people. They're very unkosher 
to eat pig or ham. But anyway, they begged to, to be thrown into the swine. And I don't know if Jesus has compassion even on the uh, demons, but he goes along with us. He sends them in to the pigs. The pigs run down this steep abatement into the lake and are drowned. It's a bummer for the pigs. I don't know why Jesus did it this way. Um, the best guess I, and there's probably a better guess, but the best thing I can come up with is he wanted people to be able to see that this man really was delivered. The demons were gone. I have a friend who used to minister in China, Dick Hillis, and he told about a time that he was uh, in China. A couple of Chinese Christians came up to him and said, we need to go and deliver this man from the demon." He uh, was a little skeptical. He'd never dealt with anything like this. He was pretty nervous. They took him to this uh, small hut. To get in the hut, they had to step over this mangy-looking little dog in, in the front of it. And there was this man writhing on the ground, injuring himself. They started praying. Dick said two men were praying in faith. One was praying in fear. But as they were praying, suddenly the dog jumped up and began to run frantically around the hut. fell over dead. And the man sat there and was free and calm. The demons were gone. And everyone in that village knew exactly what had happened. In fact, they began to call the God of the Christians, the, the, the nothing-he-can't-do God, because they saw clearly that God could handle the problem. Anyway, back to our story. These herdsmen ran and told everyone in town, in villages, what had happened. And by the next morning... They all come out to see for themselves what had happened. And here's this man who had so terrified them, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to Jesus teach him. These people have a very similar reaction to the disciples. They are terrified. And they don't know what to do with somebody with that kind of power. They knew how out of control this guy was, how nothing they could do, chains, nothing they could do could control this guy. And Jesus had handled it. And they're terrified. They begged Jesus to go away. Please leave. Now, now some people speculate that's because of their resentment that their investment in pork belly futures just took a dive. But I think it was just they just didn't know what to do with a man who had this awesome power. You see, in this deliverance, they don't see Jesus' compassion for this man who had been tormented day and night, who had been isolated, who, who was so self-destructive and out there defiled and unclean physically and spiritually, emotionally. They just see Jesus' power and it scares them. By the way, in this extreme case, we see the goal of all demonic activity, all allure, temptation to sin. The goal and the end of sin is to isolate us, to, to torment us, to keep make us self-destructive and defiled physically and spiritually. But anyway, these guys don't see Jesus' heart in this. They just see His power. And they allow their fear to drive a wedge between them and Jesus. They beg Him to go. The only one who could really help them they ask him to leave. On the other hand, this uh, man who had the demons, he begs Jesus to let him go with him. He wants to be with Jesus. But Jesus says, no, I want you to go home and tell everyone, your friends, your family, everyone, what God has done for you. 
Now, the remarkable thing in the context of the book of Mark, or the book of Luke, is that every other instance to this point in Luke, when uh, Jesus had cast out a demon, he tells them not to say anything. When he cured somebody, he asked them not to tell anybody, to keep it quiet. Now, what's the difference here? Well, I think there's two things. One, this area Jesus was unknown in, that there wasn't the problem of everybody coming to see the show. Uh, he didn't have the same need to, to kind of downplay uh, the razzle-dazzle so that he could preach the Word. But I think the bigger reason was this man had a testimony that Jesus wanted. This man had a testimony with power because this man had the testimony of a changed life. See, the real power in a Christian testimony is, is a changed life, is a resurrected, a recreated man or woman. That's the kind of testimony Jesus wants. And that's what He wants from us, to just tell others what Jesus has done for us. Tell others of His mercy. As a uh, postscript to this story, later on in Jesus' ministry, He comes back to this area, and we discover that this man had done his job. When Jesus comes back into the area, 4,000 people come out to hear Him teach and sit at His feet as He teaches them. See, they're no longer afraid of Jesus, probably because of this man's testimony. Now, what is the bottom line in these stories? What are they trying to teach us? Well, it's very simple and very important. The bottom line in these stories is Jesus can handle what scares you. Doesn't matter what it is, whether it's circumstances that are beyond your control, even as far as the weather, or whether it's people, a person who intimidates you, who frightens you. Jesus can handle it. You know what scares you? Is it, is it physical pain, illness? Is it losing your job? Is it failure as a husband or as a mother? Is it never getting married? Is it never being valued for who you are? Is it losing one of your children? You see, whatever scares you, Jesus can handle it. We tend to let our fears, and we all have them, we let our fears drive a wedge between us and Jesus. Like, like wounded animals, we snap at the one who really loves us, the one who can take care of our fears. We chase Him away rather than turning to Him. Being honest, pouring out our heart, telling Him about our fears, knowing that He won't reject us. But at the same time, reminding ourselves just who He is. That He is the nothing-He-can't-do God. He is the God who can take care of us. And we can be courageous. We needn't be cowardly. In the midst of our fear, We remind ourselves that He's in the boat. The boat won't sink and the storm won't last forever. He's in the boat. And the scariest thing that you can imagine, He can handle. See, that's the point of these stories. That's the lesson that Jesus wanted His disciples to understand. And that's the lesson that He has for us. That Jesus can handle it. Stay in the boat with Him. Don't bail out. Be strong and courageous in Him. Let's pray. 
Lord, I confess that it doesn't take a lot to scare me. It doesn't take a lot for me to turn on you, to accuse you of not paying attention, not caring, to attack you in my fear. And I'm sorry that I act so cowardly. I pray for each of us that we would not act cowardly in the midst of our fear, in the midst of the confusion that often uh, takes us in our fear, that we would not turn against you. We would pour our hearts out to you. Let you show us more of yourself. Let you show us your ability to handle it. Whether it's uh, a sudden fear that comes and goes or whether it's a long-term fear that we live with day after day, month after month, year after year. Lord, we want to trust you, to know you well enough to know that you really do care. Lord, I pray for each person here. Each person has their own fear, the things that scare them, that send that adrenaline pumping through their body, that wake them up in the middle of the night. Lord, I pray for each of us that we would learn to bring that to you, to trust you, to stay in the boat with you rather than panicking and jumping out, trying to handle it ourselves. Lord, you are a mighty God. There is nothing you can't do. Help us hold to that. As a result, help us to be strong, to be courageous, to be bold for you. Pray this in your name. Amen.